Well, hey, everybody, and welcome back to Ghouls in the House. I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And I'm Natalie Latovsky. And this is a special episode celebrating my 50th birthday. Woo! Which was actually almost a month ago at this point. Things had been weird for a long time, and I'd always had maybe a certain conception of what I would do for my 50th birthday. I always consider big anniversaries important in pop culture and media, and I knew that 50 is a big deal for me. I've also been struggling with aspects of it quite a bit, but I thought, oh, we'll do something special, and then the whole world turned upside down, and by the time we actually got to my 50th birthday, a lot of options were limited. Yeah, I mean, we're still... We're still mid-pandemic here. I mean, both of us are at a point where we don't feel comfortable behaving as though we are post-pandemic. So a, a party of... was kind of out of the question. Yeah, it doesn't matter fully vaccinated or not. I'm erring on the side of not wanting to die. Also, a, so. a lot of our friends are not necessarily near, and it would, would have required yeah. more travel. It's just too much. And I've never been a particularly partying or going out sort of person, but I imagine we would have done something. But So options are limited. We're in the house. And then I thought, well, we always tend to watch marathons of things for various reasons anyway, and we're also doing this show. And I thought, okay, what if I put together a list of things to watch on my 50th birthday that all are relevant to the birthday in some way. So I was born September 7th, 1971, and I decided to look up everything I could related to that date that would give us some things to watch. And it also struck me as, as interesting and odd and fun that so many of those things actually lined up with things I already like or would have already watched or did already watch. You'll see what I mean when we get into it. So this is also going to be a different kind of episode in the sense that we're not going to do a deep dive on any of these things. We're going to talk briefly about all of the things we watched that day because it was quite a run. But I just wanted to devote an episode to all the stuff that we watched on the actual birth date. So one of the things I did, first of all, was I looked up, we've been watching Columbo. And this we don't have to talk about too much because it was actually the night before. But I've been introducing you to Columbo and it's been fun to go back to all these old episodes, which I haven't seen in years, but had seen most of them, certainly more than once. And we've been watching a lot of them, so I thought, okay, I know Columbo was on in 71. I wasn't sure exactly where it wound up, but I thought, okay, what's the one that aired closest to my birthday? And as it turns out, Columbo began its actual episodic run after two pilot movies one week after my birthday on September 15th. So the night before, we watched Murder by the Book, which was considered the first regular episode with Jack Cassidy, one of the three Jack Cassidy ones, and that was fun. Little and, little opener for us. And it gave me a chance to give you an early birthday present, because incidentally, I had bought you the entire run of Columbo on disc. That's right, which was a nice <laughs> surprise. Everything on DVD. You also gave me a book called Cooking with Columbo, which is someone put together recipes for every Columbo episode. So we've been dipping into that and looking at those as we go along. So that was the night before. So then on the birthday itself, we ran through six movies. I had a few things that were planned and then a few things that I just kind of picked on the fly. And it was a lot of fun. And basically, as I've already mentioned in several past episodes, we've been very steeped in Mystery Science Theater as our go-to all day, every day when nothing else is going on for quite a while. It's basically like radio to us at this yeah. point. 
And so I thought, okay, what's the mystery science theater that comes closest to my birthday in terms of the when the movie came from? And the fun part was that the 1971 movie they did was Touch of Satan, which we've been seeing a lot lately. So I thought, all right, we'll kick off of the Mystery Science Theater and watch The Touch of Satan. And then I looked up what was number one at the box office the week of my birthday. And amazingly enough, and my good friend Scott Calora was excited about this too, the number one box office hit on September 7th, 1971 was The Omega Man. I couldn't have planned it better. So then we watched that. And then kind of just for the hell of it, uh, we're looking for some other things to throw in there. And it was a little off because it's technically 1972. But then we watched Dracula AD 72, which is my all-time favorite hammer, Dracula. Then we uh, watched one of the single greatest horror TV movies of all time, one that has truly settled into being considered rightly a classic uh, not just as a TV movie, but just as a movie in general, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, which is not from 71, it's from 81. It's celebrating its 40th anniversary, but I did find that it aired on my birthday, September 7th, 1985, and I'm pretty certain that I would have been watching it that night. I imagine that's where your impressions that you remember of it come from, too. It's very likely. I think I might have seen it when it first aired, but the likelier time when it might have hit me would it be would be that. So I don't know for sure. And then I also thought, all right, what's the horror movie in general that was released closest to my birth date? And would it be something I either know or don't know? And the thing I found particularly amazing was that one of the movies that has this incredible reputation for being extraordinarily influential and stylish and a modern masterpiece for many people, released one day afterward on September 8th, 1971, is A Bay of Blood, otherwise known as Twitch of the Death Nerve, a movie that many people credit as the inspiration for Friday the 13th and countless other slashers, and I had never seen it, and you had never actually. I think it's possible I watched it with Andy, my Zombie Mania co-author, many, many years ago, but I don't remember. I had never seen so it. So it was like seeing it brand new. And then finally, at the end of the night, when you'd already gone to sleep, <laughs> I snuck in one more, which was I looked to see what was airing on television the night of September 7th, 1971, and found that amazingly enough, one of the TV horror movies that everybody talks about, aired actually on that night. It was one that had originally debuted in 1970, but it aired on the night of September 7th, 71, and in a repeat, and it's called Crowhaven Farm. So I watched that on my phone. <laughs> and we're going to talk about all of these right now. And the one thing we didn't get to was The Wolfman, because I thought, how about we count back 50 years from 71? And I found, of course, 1941, and I couldn't have picked a better choice than The Wolfman. But we didn't get to that yet. But we'll work that in during the Halloween season and get to some other Universal stuff. So that's the birthday run. And we're going to start talking about them. And we're going to try to keep talking about each one of these to maybe about 10 minutes apiece. And we're doing a little bit of an atypical sort of listicle of an episode here. Yeah. But I, I kind of like that. It was an interesting run, especially because we started with movies... I'd already seen and then eventually rolled through to ones I hadn't seen. And yeah, and it actually flows that way for both of us because then we get to the end of this list. It's ones I hadn't seen either. Mm -hmm. Certainly the last two I hadn't seen. 
And uh, one thing you do learn when you focus your attention primarily on things from the early 70s is we were just obsessed with witchcraft and the occult <laughs> and people having their souls ripped away by Satan. That yeah, was Boy, satanic panic is real in basically all of these. And as you've discovered, not just in these, but in Colombo, certainly early Colombo, lots and lots of really big flared pants. Ooh, I love the pants. And denim. There's no end to the amount of denim so that's available. Denim. So let's jump in with Touch of Satan, which has become one of our favorite mystery science theaters anyway, just in general. It could have been a love story, but the touch of Satan turned it into a nightmare. There'll be no talk. We'll have the witch over my dead body. So be it. A story of exorcism that could happen to your next door neighbor. Or maybe you yourself have felt the touch of Satan. I, when we first started watching Mystery Science Theater together, one of the things I always used to tell you is how much for me the sweet spot was the Joel years after Kevin Murphy took over as Tom. So like season two through to his end of his run. But the more I've settled into watching it with you, the more I've found that I feel like the best team was Mike and actually whoever was with mike you know and well like my sweet spot was always sci-fi channel mike shows simply because that's when i watched the yep. show i actually figured out i think the actual first episode i ever saw of mystery science theater was a sci-fi channel airing of the movie and yeah. then started watching it when it was on then so i mean i when we would pick episodes you'd always pick a joel i'd always pick a mike and just realized that it was happening that way. But then we, we found the ones we'd settled into that we liked together, which kind of follows, for the most part, the fan wisdom of what people tend to like. Mm -hmm. Space Mutiny and Werewolf. And, you know, there are ones that Danger Death Ray is one of ours. But Touch of Satan is kind of built up for us. And so I did a little looking at, like, it has early work by Joe Blasco, the makeup guy, the old lady, and that's not too bad, really. The old, the old age makeup in Touch of Satan is actually pretty great it's pretty good yeah. especially the one at the end also like you you should know already you listen to us full spoilers for everything you're not gonna avoid hearing endings of everything and here. you're gonna get like a fast-paced rapid fire spoiler yeah. list and it's gonna be fast but like also like when she starts to because the short version of this is uh hapless guy who's on a road trip and dresses like a 10 year old boy uh, shows up at a farm where a girl with two people who we find out are definitely not her parents, but who they are, we never really know. Kids, grandkids, who knows? Randos. Um, she's a witch. Her sister was a witch. She made a deal with Satan to keep her sister alive, but only as an increasingly decrepit old hag. And then by the end, he kind of like saves her from Satan's spell, but then has to get them both back into it in order to keep her young. But my point to getting to that was that there's more subtle old age makeup on her at the end when she starts changing, and it's pretty good looking. Mm -hmm. Doing subtle old age stuff is hard, and that's not bad. The and movie's terrible, but... <laughs> well, I was going to say, this is one of those movies as well that we haven't seen outside of the Mystery Science Theater episode. Right. And if we were doing a full episode on it, obviously, we would have watched the original. Um, we've talked about that before, about how sometimes we end up missing things or things that feel like plot holes aren't it's just how they cut it for mystery science theater in this case we're talking strictly about the mystery science theater treatment yeah because that's a great 
thing to have on like during breakfast when you're just kind of easing yourself into the day. Yeah, you're just trying to get yourself ready for the 50th birthday day and realizing it's going to be a long day. <laughs> and you need to get to movies because you don't want to think about the fact you're turning 50. So I also think this movie probably like the plot holes that exist are not because of the cuts for Mystery Science Theater. It's it's just the Swiss cheese of a movie. Good things about it, though, include the fact the music was done by Robert O. Ragland. And a lot of this music sounds like something Ron Grainer would have done for The Prisoner or, well, something like that. Or, or Omega Man, definitely. Like so an eerie 70s feel. It actually, going. yeah, it fit nicely before Omega Man because there's some weird moments in the music that sound very Ron Grainer, except it isn't. It's Ragland. So the the music's pretty good. It has the the makeup's pretty good. Uh, it's interesting that the cinematography was done by Jordan Cronenweth, who went on to work on Blade Runner. So you got to start somewhere, apparently. But this movie is bad. Oh yeah, and it also features Robert Easton, that guy that some of you might know, who was the legendary vocal and dialect coach in Hollywood, who would occasionally show up acting. I always remember him having a small part in Working Girl with Melanie Griffith and. Harrison Ford and Sigourney Weaver. And it's like every time he ever turns up in everything, he does the same boring, standard, fake-sounding Southern accent. And I've never been able to understand how that guy was good at dialects. But the thing is, he was. I mean, we've seen clips of him. Yeah. What was it like The Tonight Show, I yeah, think, we watched? Like He was on Carson. And can seamlessly transition into like any accent of any dialect but i think it's just because of the way he looks he only looks like the kind of guy that a southern drawl is gonna come out of he just always did foghorn leghorn in every acting role and he also turns up in the great spider invasion on mystery science theater too also playing trash (laughs) which he's really good at but touch of satan is that i don't know i don't think touch of satan is all that bad like an exploitation movie of the time it's got its moments like one of the things they torture it for rightly is how slow paced a lot of the scenes are like everybody pauses between every line of dialogue or sometimes in a line of dialogue well it's one of those movies where you feel like they kept every second of footage because they needed it to get the film to be long enough that they could call it a film. It's pretty much exactly 90 minutes, apparently. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it even includes just like a trip to town to go grocery shopping yeah. for no reason. And constant use of Amazing Grace, because as they make fun of in that, it's a nice public domain tune they can keep <laughs> using. I I mean, they actually joke about it. Like, why would you use Amazing Grace in a satanic movie? It's like the irony is perfect. That, that yeah, part's it's fine. juxtaposition. I get it. But it was a fun start to the day because it's a mystery science theater we've seen plenty of times before. And it was a 1971 film. And it really did fascinate me the further we went along during the day, just how much the early 70s were obsessed with Satan and witchcraft. And I know there's like the, and I've written an article about it, in fact, for where it was was this at fandom.com it's all right you're old now so you I can't know. remember things i can't remember anymore. <laughs> i did a big feature about the exorcist a few years ago that i was really kind of proud of it was a nice little retrospective like why it it still stands the test of time and has you know inspired other things but it was also talking about how there was a moment in pop culture that came off of things like rosemary's baby and that and time running the is god dead 
uh, headline, and there's a lot of that going on. So naturally, that filtered through pop culture everywhere. But also, I I mean, the thing is, we could do a whole deep dive episode as to why the 70s were obsessed with witchcraft. Right. But in two words, I can tell you why. Okay. Women's liberation. Yeah, that I mean, that's does... that's the genesis of witchcraft in the first place. Right. Is like sisters doing it for themselves. Which it's I was like... fascinated when I read that article recently and like found out about where the conical hat came from and... I never knew that. Ladies yeah. making beer. Yeah. It's a fascinating yeah. history. Um, definitely worth looking into. But basically, women's liberation. All and, and as we're heading, we're in October now and heading into Halloween season. It certainly behooves everyone to know. And I feel ashamed I didn't know sooner. Because, I mean, evidently, certainly people that know have been talking about it forever. Mm-hmm. But like every single bit of the iconic witch image that we're familiar with was all women making and selling beer. The cauldrons, the yeah. cats, yeah. the uh, hats. Just, yeah. Yeah. The cauldrons were for brewing the beer. The cats were to keep the mice away from your barley and hops. And the, and the conical hats were so they would see you in a so marketplace. So they would see you in a market and yeah. know, I see a pointy hat. That's where the beer is. Because right. ladies have always been like keen to figure out the marketing angle for things. And then as... Uh... As Alan Alda pointed out in that Hollywood, the Women of Hollywood documentary, as soon as any industry becomes profitable, that's when the men step in and take it over. So, yeah. Yeah. So they had to vilify the women in order to essentially ostracize them and push them out of being able to do that. And thus you get essentially a brewing industry that since then has been completely dominated by men. And we get witches everywhere. And witches. With pointy hats. And Brooms. what was the broom for? Was the broom something related to that too then probably? I don't know. I can't remember. Hmm. Maybe just related to like, you know, sweeping up your space or Maybe. cleaning the shop. Yeah. Or I mean, any anything that involves food safety, I would hope, even yeah. in like the Middle Ages, would uh, would involve keeping things kind of clean. Anyway, Touch of Satan was a nice little kickoff to <laughs> We it. digress a little bit. Um, also, go to see the poster, which I can't turn the computer around to show you right now, which features faces in a, a vaguely symmetrical plume of fire that actually has very uh, obvious Freudian connections if you look at the fire in its very petaled kind of look there. So we know where that poster's going. But yeah, if you if you want to watch it, a lot of Mystery Science Theater episodes are streaming courtesy of Shout Factory. We tend to watch them through an app called Tubi, T-U-B-I. But Which I've also... been using recently, by the way, to also revisit the entire Buck Rogers TV series, which I'll surely talk more about in a later episode. <laughs> There's a lot of classic television on there, too. Um, but yeah, limited commercials. And they got quite a lot of episodes, including Touch of Satan. So give it a watch. Next up, the Omega Man. The last man on earth lives in a fortress. What day is it anyway? Monday? The hell it is. It's Sunday. Sunday I always dress for dinner. And we really don't have to talk about this too much because I think it's still available. A lot of episodes have have gone offline. But we did a Doctor of the Dead about the Omega Man some ways back that also featured my good friend and IGN editor, Scott Calora, who also considers it one of his favorite movies. And if you find both of us on Twitter at any given point, we're likely to be tweeting <laughs> gifts of Heston at each other from that or Planet of the Apes. 
So yeah, this is a go-to anyway. I see it over and over again. It's been a little while since the last time I've seen it, but it always pops up one way or the other. And it was in 1971. And I kind of... the thing is, I'm relying on the fact that it said there are a couple places that say it was actually number one at the box office that week. There are also sites that list something else. And it's a little murky because the further you go back, the less you actually have definitive box office stats. Yeah. And like, for instance, boxofficemojo.com and some of the main places aren't very clear on it. But I decided to rely on the fact that that's what I'm going to believe, mm-hmm. <laughs> that that was what it was. It certainly was in the theaters that week. It sounds like it was number one, at least at a certain point. Um, if nothing else, people were definitely enjoying it in theaters that and week. And there's a Doctor of the Dead episode where we go into deep detail about all of it. But for for whatever reason, uh, some of them can sometimes be inexplicable and it's hard to say. Sometimes it's just you saw it when you saw it, but it's always been a favorite of mine. It's a very cheesy movie. The second of three so far direct adaptations of Richard Matheson's I Am Legend. And by anyone's account, certainly not faithful, but then nobody's ever adapted that novel faithfully yet. But I love it. it the Ron Grainer music is a soundtrack that I've listened to countless times in my car and always wish that there would be nobody else on the road so I could just drive around for a while. <laughs> well, if you got up really early, you might be able I've, to. I've tried in the past. It's difficult. Andy and I certainly used to keep that one playing all the time during road trips. And it's Heston being Heston, and there's all these great, ridiculous, like, sly references and dialogue to him being God. (laughs) That's actually, like, one of my favorite little bits is just a little girl, like, looking up at him, like, are you God? And he doesn't say a thing. He doesn't say no. (laughs) I love that. And, I mean, it's also very clear, like, you know, he's got the line where uh, uh, Lisa sees all of the tv camera and everything and he says i'm a narcissist and it's like yes we know yeah so i mean it's very self-aware of heston's position at the time but it's also part of heston's incredible run of sci-fi modern sci-fi classics with planet of the apes and that and soylent green and oh it's just and and yeah it's hard to really i can't criticize it because yeah there's plenty of reasons that it's it's kind of a cheesy and, and weak movie in certain respects, but that doesn't matter to me because I love it. And it's also part of a time for me. So just the sound of that movie uh, puts me back. So um, It's also got a great sound to it. Basically, it's a movie that sounds amazing, looks a bit cheesy, and relies on some real... I guess, loosey-goosey decisions to move the plot forward. But it's still an enjoyable watch. And I do think it's probably the most watchable adaptation of I Am Legend if you're going to watch it, like, more regularly. Like, repeat watchable. Yeah, and I mean, also, the other thing, too, is in revisiting it right now, it's painfully relevant in its own, like over-the-top way in the way it depicts the breakdown of things during a pandemic. This is biological warfare. And the short version of this one is that Heston's a military doctor who's working on something at the time when China and Russia have evidently used biological weapons against each other. We're apparently not even directly involved, but it's basically doomed the world. Everybody's dead, except a few people who are slowly transitioning into sickness And then people that have basically mutated into pasty-faced 
you know, uh, tertiary cases, as they call it. And Matthias, who was once a very Fox News kind of network anchor, has now become the lead of this cult. And that part in itself resonates more strongly now than I think it ever has and makes a lot of sense. He basically was preaching from his news show right before everything collapses. And then he's, you know, gathering his cult together and they become like this Luddite group, a very a Luddite group that isn't consistent with its own rules, which is also very much in keeping with the standard stupidity of today. Yeah. You know, so... He invents his own version of reality and sells it to others. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is very prescient, really. Mm-hmm. And and some great stuff. Rosalind Cash is Lisa, who, uh, whose career and life you should read about, too. It's fascinating. And this features one of the, the world's first interracial kisses in a film. And uh, that in and of itself is fascinating. I do like one quote that I'm seeing on Wikipedia. I've seen this before, uh, where she said how nervous she was doing that. And we talked about when we watched it, how they very pointedly keep that in shadow. Like, they wanted to do the kiss, but they also didn't want to offend the racists. So (laughs) they keep it in shadow. They're going to be offended. So just, like, do the shot. And uh, Heston said, it was in the 70s that I realized a generation of actors had grown up who saw me in terms of the iconic roles they remembered from their childhoods. And Rosalind Cash supposedly told him it's a spooky feeling to screw Moses. (laughs) So (laughs) there you go. So that's that's cute. And uh, Lincoln Kilpatrick is in it as Zachary, Anthony Zerba as Matthias, which also all these neat little connections. There's Mm. the cult angle, which while not satanic in and of itself, still has the vibe. In some respects, and Touch of Satan, the Mystery Science Theater episode, does have an Anthony Zerba joke. So there is a point <laughs> where Mike says something like, "You know, this is the '70s, so I'm pretty sure Anthony Zerba is going to show up in this." Well, no, but one movie later, for us in the Omega Man, he does. This is kind of like when TCM will run like a whole <laughs> right. day of movies, where the movie that follows has one actor from the previous movie, and then one actor from that movie who's right. not the same actor as in the so next one. So we'll be one. doing that. We'll see how we keep that going. But with a through line of Satan. And Lincoln Kilpatrick as Zachary is great, and I just saw him again. I, I've also been like rediscovering at this, like what I feel is like a significant point in my life, whether that's artificial or not, you focus on a number, but it's meant something to me, and I've been fascinated by the things I've been revisiting and realizing just how important they are to how they shape my perception of things for good and bad. But I'm also fascinated now rewatching Buck Rogers, how many of the people in that are people that I was seeing at the same time and other things that meant something to me also. Mm -hmm. And I never realized until now how big a deal that show was for cementing certain people for me. And Lincoln Kilpatrick, who's Zachary in this, shows up as the doctor in the Space Vampire episode of Buck Rogers. So I was seeing his face. He's also the priest, by the way, in Soylent Green. I always forget that. He's the one that actually gets to say, should I make room, which is the reference to the original story, you know, make mm-hmm. room, make room. And I love him in that. He's just so beaten down as a person in that. It's like he's quite a presence for me in some of these things. And it's interesting to me to see these faces pop up over and over again. But I love Omega Man. It's incredibly cheesy. We've said that a million times already, I know. Because we're trying not to get too much into it, I guess. We but... also don't use the term cheesy as like an insult. No. I it's don't... just you have to know going into it, you're not going to be like terrified by the effects. I certainly it. don't think so. Although I have to admit, 
even all these years later, when I watch the Omega Man, there are parts of it that give me a slight feeling that I think I felt more when I was a kid, particularly stuff like when Richie goes to see Matthias to tell him that they can help them with the vaccine. The scenes in the darkness in that place where they all pop up or the scene where Heston finds the corpses in the bed at the hotel. I think those used to creep me out a little bit, and now I just get like the slightest feeling of unease. It does, it did work for me. And also now that you're sort of mentioning and describing that, it's actually kind of a good segue in that it is in some aspects, or in a lot of aspects, a vampire movie. Oh, absolutely. Just without the bloodthirst but they live in darkness. They they can't go out into the light because it hurts them. Yeah. I mean, it's some of the only stuff that stays faithful of the original vampire idea mm-hmm. of the book. But yeah. Which leads us to our next film, which was kind of picked on the fly, but I'd been wanting to watch it again for a long time. I have some movies that I used to watch over and over and over again that I've kind of left in the past for a variety of reasons, and I'd kind of like to like reclaim them. And there are a couple of Hammer movies that were very important to me for a certain period of time that I watched over and over again. And the two of them are Dracula AD 72, which I know if you're a Hammer fan or a Dracula fan, you may not necessarily put this at the top of the list. I'd hope some of you would, but it still remains one of my favorite, if not the favorite, Hammer Dracula. The other one that's of the ones I'd like to reclaim that I haven't watched again yet in many years is Captain Kronos which was basically like Hammer deciding, what if we did a vampire hunter like a Marvel comic? And it's amazing. Both of them also have Carolyn Monroe, so that's probably also why I was watching both of them. So, Dracula AD 72. A date with the devil. Are you ready? He's ready. He's waiting to freak you out. Right out of this world. The year is 1972. A leap year in horror. A vintage year for vampires. Was an attempt at the end of the Hammer Dracula series to try to revitalize a series that never really entirely achieved great heights, but certainly generated a few installments that are considered very good. Uh, including the first one, which has never been a favorite of mine, the one that's the closest to like an original adaptation, Dracula. Mm. I prefer the, the again, cheesy. I guess I prefer the cheesier 70s ones or late 60s ones. Taste the Blood of Dracula is, I think, my favorite of the period Hammer Draculas. We'll get to that, I guess, at some point. But then they decided, well, we're getting to the end. Christopher Lee's getting increasingly disgusted with things. He would either show up and not say any dialogue at all or show up and always say one line. And then they said, all right, how about we try putting him in the present? And the result is this, and then the immediate sequel, which was the final one in the series, Satanic Rites of Dracula, which has fallen into the public domain. And I have a very low opinion of that one, mainly because it undercuts some of the great character work done in this one by actually bringing back characters and trying to maintain continuity, but then not really. But less said about that, the better right now. The important thing is Dracula AD 72 is crazy, It's incredibly over-the-top, aware of itself as a mod 70s swing in London 
thing in the same way that we've said in the past night of the comet feels like a movie that's instantly nostalgic for the 80s that it's in this one feels like it already knows what people are going to do to the 70s when looking back at it and just goes for it for me it felt like an experience of and this is the first we watched of the day i hadn't seen before if somebody were to say to me what were the 70s exactly I feel like I could put this movie on and just say they were this. <laughs> and I think it, it kind of covers everything. I think so. Yeah. And the clothes are amazing. The amazing. Gener- the generation gap, man, the fashions, the drugs, stone ground, the incredible rock band that shows up and then leaves after doing <laughs> alligator man. And- they do like three songs at a party to start off the movie it's like a showcase for stone ground yeah it's like horror party beach where that band plays a lot and then disappears Mm -hmm. and then uh and then dracula because and then christopher lee's dracula who never leaves the graveyard this desanctified church set because he's not bothered enough to actually participate in the film and the other thing that's interesting is every one of these movies always has this incredibly like circuitous path to like how do we resurrect dracula this time and really when you see the connections here it only really occurred to me more so than ever before while watching it this time how much this is really another riff on satanism and the occult and uh, like an evil prayer circle black mass kind of thing and dracula's kind of an afterthought like the idea it's a vampire movie is really kind of inconsequential it's really a satanism movie yeah i mean dracula basically serves as the demon you accidentally summon while screwing around with black magic yeah and christopher neem's character who's the great villain also turns up in a like what's considered a lost tom baker doctor who but it's and he's been... basically like the renfield yeah he's johnny Johnny Alucard, <laughs> one of my favorite scenes in any vampire movie ever. Which Maybe actually, any movie. It's an amazing scene. Which actually, to be fair, is itself, I, I, I hesitate to say a ripoff, but let's say an homage to a scene in Son of Dracula, the Universal movie, with Lon Chaney Jr. playing Dracula, which is the worst of the multiple monster roles he plays. He's not a good Dracula. He's not a Dracula. But if I remember right, Son of Dracula has a scene just like this where someone sits down and writes Alucard down on a piece of paper and then has to actually draw the lines to Dracula. Just every to make single sure, line. Every single line. And only then does Peter Cushing this go, oh, oh my, it's Dracula. Like, it's as if if he'd drawn a line to every word, got to the L, and then the A didn't match, he'd go, oh, well, I guess it's not then. That's... <laughs> Also, it was close. Did no but... one ever think just take it and like hold it up to a mirror and like it won't be perfect, <laughs> right? But you'll get the idea. Johnny Alucard, and it's a nice little touch. It would be anyway because you yeah. know you can't actually see Dracula in the mirror. You That's see, right. but you can the see mirror. the word. And it's also we, we you were talking at the time how Johnny's motivations and powers are odd. He seems to have been able to live a hundred years. And not age. And not age. And, and benefit- have access to resources. Yeah, but he's not a vampire yet and demands to be, despite the fact that becoming a vampire seems to instantly give you way more vulnerabilities than what he already seems to enjoy mm-hmm. as a seeming immortal 
or at least long-lived servant of evil. Like, why even resurrect Dracula at that point? Just keep playing off like you're not getting it done and just live forever. Because what's he going to do to you? <laughs> He's literally just a bunch of ash John, in the ground. Johnny has a great deal until he decides to actually do what his master wants him to do. It's, then It's then a it's real ruined. lesson in, like, yeah. how the, the sort of second banana to the villain is never gonna actually get what they want i i love this movie again for reasons that have little to do with it making any sense i don't know why this one always like connected with me like i said there are one or two of the period ones i like but i again i love the music from this one i have the soundtrack from this the opening theme of this one is one of my favorite themes from any 70s movie Similar to how probably my favorite Planet of the Apes theme really is Escape from the Planet of the Apes. The really jazzy Jerry Goldsmith score. Again, 71. Music that a lot of people probably also think is like crazy and cheesy and whatever. That seems to be a recurring theme for this stuff. But I love that. I also love Peter Cushing's slightly curved uh, built-in bookcases in his office, in his library. Love that. They seem like not the most practical. Not necessarily. Because books are not curved. No, but they it looks really cool. <laughs> and he, he just has endless books about witchcraft and the occult. You know, all that occult jazz, man. But I think for me, most importantly, what I learned is that if you have a problem with a pesky vampire, just put him in the shower. And That's you're right. set. Yeah, running water. Like a hose, yep. sink. And I like the fact that he does it to himself. <laughs> He's so incredibly stupid that he gets himself trapped in the bathtub. It basically, it's it's a moment where you could also add in the, like, comedy cops. Yeah, right. Like, bit right. from Halloween 5. Right. And it's like it would fit perfectly of, like, a womp womp. And there are some standard things. Like, Stephanie Beecham is their lead as Jessica. And she's great being the damsel in distress. But with a bit more, uh, maybe... In, by, in today's parlance maybe with a bit more agency but still ultimately she has to be saved by her grandfather but it's also like a doctor who because the two of them are like grandfather and granddaughter fighting dracula it's very similar in dynamic it's like a 70s doctor who the next one actually satanic rights very much is like a pertwee doctor who without the doctor because Dracula, for some bizarre reason, has decided to threaten the world with a disease in that one. But... You could basically just redub it where any time she says grandfather, you just say doctor. Yeah. And it would work. Well, grandfather would still work. But yeah, just well, the... yeah, if you're going with yeah. like, the original dynamic. The police, the policeman in this I like. He actually pays attention for the most part. Beecham was great. And uh, some people might know she also did. Well, some people might remember she did Sequest. We'll, we'll skip that. But she was in a great next generation, too, as uh, Moriarty's love. Countess, I think. Well, anyway, some of you will correct me on that. But um, <laughs> Oh, they will. But they Dracula AD 72 begins and ends with Carolyn Monroe to a certain extent. And that's fine. She isn't in it that much, though. She really isn't. But she does get to like voice her own lines. She does. It's one of the few times you're going to actually hear her real accent, which is rare. She actually also does. It's also in... Um, in Captain Kronos, you also get to hear her actually speak. So I I love Dracula D seventy two, and I know it's not a lot of Hammer fans' favorites, but it's just one of those things. It, it sticks with me. So at this point, we were rolling along, and uh, I don't know that I'd actually plan this one either. I kind of decided on this one on the fly too. But for a long time now, 
I've been wanting to revisit Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. Tonight on the CBS Saturday Night Movies, this gentleman saved this little girl's life, but they accused him of harming her. Do this ourselves. And he was tragically murdered. Now, one by one, the men of this town are dying. Who is his Avenger? And there's a lot of us, especially if you grew up through the 70s and early 80s, of truly, it seems in the last few years particularly, a real building and building of respect and admiration for this golden age of the TV movie, especially the horror and thriller TV movies of that time, which very often are uh, perhaps even better than some of their theatrical cousins at the same time, and some great classics of horror storytelling on television with a kind of frankness of story and character where you you be surprised sometimes that that aired on a network today they wouldn't run some of the things they did then it's also something i think that there is no real comparison point for in like the modern viewing experience and i guess the stand-in now would be like a netflix original or yeah. like exclusive to hulu yeah. or something I, I think so and i mean I'm, I'm sure the networks are still doing stuff but you're not aware of it in the same way and also I mean, frankly, we had the three channels and maybe some independent channels, and that was it. You were going to be looking to see what's on the three networks, and that was it. Well, anyway, if somebody's aware of anything that we're missing, that's fine. But certainly it's true that there is what's considered a, a classic era of it. And Dark Knight of the Scarecrow was one of those movies from my childhood that I remembered, and that for many years I wasn't entirely clear on what it was. Like pre-internet, I'd seen it. Probably saw it more than once. Might have seen it that night in 85 that I mentioned. But didn't necessarily remember the title. Apart from the fact that I knew it was this weird, creepy movie about someone who's like become a scarecrow. And it was many years before I really had access to information to know that that's what that was. And then come to find out that for many people, this has become one of the top five, top three sometimes number one favorites of that era as a TV movie a horror production that's considered just a gem. And it's not it's not from the 70s, it's from 81. It debuted in 81. It's interesting, it was directed by uh, Frank DeFolita, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, who is the author of Audrey Rose. Hmm. Originally, the script was intended to be an independent feature, but CBS bought it. And despite the fact that the network bought it, they didn't really make many changes to it. Remember, we talked about when we watched it. It has some really dark subject matter and implications of like, like our villainous character that Charles Durning plays that I was shocked that I don't think they'd even do in a show today. Like they wouldn't even imply. Yeah. And he is truly a loathsome individual. And the short version of this is you have... A mentally challenged guy who's like a local named Bubba, who's instantly likable to all of us watching because he has a friendship with this little girl. And clearly it's a completely innocent uh, friendship where he has the mind of a child and he they connect with one another and his mother's okay with it. She's a local farmer. It's like a farming community, very small town. I mean, basically they're two children yeah. who play together. It's just one of them happens to be an adult. But, but... For reasons that are initially sort of uncertain, 
a local guy who's also like the postal uh, delivery man, and several other guys in town are just irrationally filled with hatred for Bubba and have been trying to find a way to do something to him at some point, which eventually leads to his brutal murder. Except that for reasons that are left completely unknown to us, mainly, some extra force gives him the ability to come back and seek revenge with the help of his best friend, which is one of my favorite aspects of it. The little girl is actually really the driving force of the story. Mm -hmm. But it comes to light through the film that the main reason, it seems, our postal worker villain is mad at Bubba is because Bubba's closer to the little girl that he would like to be close to. It's real, like, gross and creepy. and It's horrifying. And it's Charles Durning, who I'm sure all of you know from countless other things, certainly one of the great prolific character actors of the last, well, you know, 40, 50 years and more maybe. And he is equally good at comedy, drama, everything like this. But in watching this again for the first time in many years, this may be one of the greatest performances I've ever seen him do. And it's a thankless task to play a character that you have to consider so irredeemable and loathsome. And he does a great job with it. I also love the fact that as the movie goes on, his hair gets crazier and crazier. <laughs> and but well, he becomes more and more unhinged, really. He becomes more the animal he really is inside. He's a great horror villain. Mm-hmm. And he's one of many reasons why I truly agree with people who say that this is like one of the examples, like the apex of TV movie horror. And, and it's because although the scarecrow is technically, quote unquote, you could argue the monster of the story, he's really the hero of the story. And the monster is Charles Durning's character. Mm-hmm. And it's really... I enjoyed it a lot seeing this again. I think we both really had a great time with it. And the that. kid does a fantastic job. Yeah, I'm I'm looking right now to see. Oh, I, I, oh, I don't have it directly in front of me. Uh, her name is Tanya Crow. Tanya Crow played Mary Lee. She went on to be on Knott's Landing, and uh, she did. She's received soap opera awards, and so she she's continued to have a career. Actually, she's my age too. She's fifty. Also in this movie, and uh, well, first of all, Bub is played by Larry Drake, who also played a similar character in L.A. Law. Anybody ever remembers watching L.A. Law? He was Benny in L.A. Law for several years, but he was also the villain in Dark Man. Dr. Giggles, I think, is another one. I've never seen that one. But Lane Smith is also in this, who I remember most from the V television series that followed the miniseries. It's just great. And uh, Marlon Brando's sister as Bubba's mother. Remember, we found that out when we looked her up. And actually, when you look at her, you can easily see the family resemblance. But she was fantastic in this, too. Everybody is great in this. The level of acting is superb across the board. The production values are, are great for a TV movie. You'd think, oh, this this looks like it could have been theatrical. And also, sometimes you watch something like this and you feel like, well, this could have been like a 45 50 minute episode of like a tv show instead like a twilight zone or an outer limits or something but in this case nothing feels like it's dragging like it doesn't feel like it's padded out in order to get the story to fit into a movie length slot no the pacing is very good the pacing's superb 
And it also, it has certain, it shares certain structural elements with like a slasher movie in that it becomes a series of kills, you know, where the, where the unseen killer, because you never see the killer through the entire movie. And one of the beautiful things about the movie is right to the last minute, you are left with the idea of what is truly happening here. Could it be that all of these guys are tortured by the guilt of what they did to him? And that's what's really leading them to their deaths. Or is there something supernatural? And the movie leaves that to the last minute. Of course, full spoilers. We already talked about it. Yes, it is supernatural. <laughs> but, but the beauty of it is it does an excellent job of not making you feel like you're being shortchanged by that, but keeping it obscured until the very end. And the kills are all things that are very clearly set up at the beginning of the movie, but all appropriate to each individual for how they die and in what context they die. Mm -hmm. And the final shot of the movie is still one of the things that has always stuck with me and is the reason I remember it as a kid, because in a way it's happy in the sense that the victim who really was the victim wins and the little girl wins, but there's also this undeniable creepy undercurrent to the fact that basically the movie ends with this little girl having control over an undead creature that can surely <laughs> do whatever she tells him to do in fact the implication at the end is they're going to play another game and who knows what she's going to do next and i also wanted to point out one other thing which is it also this time through reminded me of a movie that i watched with andy for zombie mania many years ago very, very obscure movie. I think it's from 77 called The Child, also known as Kill and Go Hide or Hide and Go Kill as a number of different titles where this little girl basically has the ability to conjure these demonic zombie-like creatures to do her bidding. And mm. it's very similar in the idea of this girl has control over a supernatural force that she kind of can... Children of the Corn yeah, style. I mean, yeah, in a way. And I mean, this is this idea that she's the brains behind the operation and he's the muscle and mm -hmm. who knows what's possible now. And it's not entirely a pleasant idea at the end, but there is a sense of justice at the end. It's just a fantastic movie. I think, I think of all the things we watched that day, and I love things like the Omega Man or Dracula AD, certainly. But I think Dark Knight of the Scarecrow was the high point of the entire little run we came up with. And I, I don't know if things have shifted now that we've changed over into another month, but that's also one that we found streaming on Tubi um, with a co couple of commercials in it, but it was available free to watch. Yeah, it used to be a little more obscure to find. Now I think because of its reputation, it's mm -hmm. become a little more... So high, high recommendation for uh, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, which is, uh, like I said, one of the high points here. Some great imagery, great acting all the way through. And then we finally decided to get to the movie that I was most interested in in certain respects, is one I'd never seen before, or think I've never seen before, and is one that has an enormous reputation. Now, plenty of people in the horror world have a great deal of respect for Mario Bava whose career encompasses a number of films that are considered classics in their own right throughout horror history. And A Bay of Blood...
also known variously as Twitch of the Death Nerve, Bloodbath, Carnage, probably 47 other titles, and not even to mention other languages, is an Italian slasher movie, Giallo, of a sort, that has been credited with basically being a primary influence on the slasher genre. Obviously, it comes after movies like Peeping Tom and Psycho, but it's very much in that area where its level of gore, the structure, certainly the idea of going to a camp-like area influenced a whole subcategory of the slasher. And in fact, at least two of the killings in that movie are directly replicated in Friday the 13th and Friday the 13th Part 2, where they basically rip them off completely, do them again. To which, less effect than the versions you see in Bay of Blood. Which I was going to say is a real, uh, a real change from what was usually happening which was italian cinema ripping off american blockbusters true so it's, it's a refreshing change i suppose and the effects were all done by carlo rambaldi who is a, a towering icon of science fiction effects because he created the animatronics for the 76 king kong he created et he worked on alien and here he was doing all of the over-the-top gore stuff for this and coming up with ways to kill people so he's sort of a direct inspiration for people like Tom Savini, who are going to follow him very shortly after. So Bay of Blood has a, an enormous reputation, and it's deserved in the sense that it has this place in history. It was all the more disappointing then that when we watched it, I found it to be a, a very empty viewing experience. It's I did a, not enjoy it at all. It's a very disjointed plot is the is the nicest way to put it it's like you're watching it and in a way i've said about other movies i can absolutely completely see where a lot of the inspiration for other films had come from elements of this one right you got all the beats like the part where like you finally find out the story at the end and somebody's confronting the killer the lineup of dead bodies you know a lot of these things are there but, and I hate to say, I mean, I think anybody listening to us also knows that we're not people that can't follow a, a convoluted or complex <laughs> plot. I couldn't figure out what was happening half the time in this movie. I did not like the structure. It's a movie that seems to desperately want to stay out of focus as often as possible. It is very uh, fascinated with soft focus and going out of focus. Um, I think I yelled, would you please just focus yeah. many times? In many contexts for the film. Yes. And I mean, I will also say it's one of those situations where, I guess, to sort of paraphrase the nice way to put it, I certainly don't want to yuck someone else's yum. That like, if it's something that you really enjoy, that's super cool. I think it was an important piece of sort of cinema history for us to check off the list having seen Will this be something that we go back to? No, I don't think so. I think for me, the viewing experience was so disjointed and quite literally so unfocused that I just couldn't really feel like I was watching something that had coherence. And so for me, that's important. And the thing is, you read a lot of like deep dive articles about Italian horror and Italian giallos. And obviously, and I've seen 
I think a decent share of them, but maybe certainly not as much as some people that are very big fans. Like, for instance, if someone considers themselves a fan of, say, even like Fulci, which I've seen every single one of the zombie movies, or like Argento, you're going to be more steeped in this aesthetic in general than I am. I still feel sort of like I'm a stranger in a strange land when I go to watch a lot of Italian horror. I can appreciate some of it, but it's the ones that I've like developed the bridge to get there in a way. And when I see new ones, or rather ones that are new to me, I can't quite connect. And you said like disjointed, out of focus. There's an element of the Italian horror storytelling aesthetic that seems to be deliberately and proudly, like uh, not necessarily incoherent, but like it's like frenetic surrealistic yeah and and disjointed from reality and continuity of story and that's part of the virtue of it for some people i don't enjoy that and i know that mario bava is considered an icon i don't like his filmmaking i can't get into it and the only other thing i would say about that is there's one thing i despise it's people who are fans of one thing attacking another person by saying well it's just because you don't get it I get it. I just don't appreciate it. And I understand that there are people that do get it. And if you do appreciate it, that's fantastic. I just can't appreciate it with you. And I will say that on one hand, I also enjoy surrealism a bit more than you do. I I like it. This didn't actually feel like it had any kind of surrealism elements to me it just felt incoherent because there's other stuff that's very surreal that we've watched that i have enjoyed i mean i'm thinking like like we're talking like gates of hell movies all oh, those i enjoy but see again and yeah, that's right. i mean and that's re- they're really surreal yeah it's like it, it goes that extra step into making it actually surreal instead of just making it incoherent and we still have to watch like uh we've seen actually we've seen only one of his uh Fulci's gates of hell we have to see uh i can never keep it straight i think city of the living dead city of the think. living dead is still on the list and house by the cemetery which i would consider the least of them but that's the third in the trilogy but mm-hmm. yeah i can enjoy those and i'm not sure how to argue that point except you know, it's the time when I saw them, maybe, but it's it certainly they hold up for me in a way that this didn't. And again, I hadn't seen this before, so and they maybe... also create an atmosphere that the the atmosphere is consistent, even yeah. if the plot isn't. This one was all over the map. There were there was some bizarre thing, like there are things that like you accept as you know you're going to get in a lot of these Italian horror movies. There's always the couple that are yelling at each other. There's, a, <laughs> with, there's always there's always that, the married couple that clearly have been done for a long time. There's usually also in a lot of these movies cruelty to some kind of animal or insect, and that part I didn't appreciate at all because I didn't want to look at it. But they, you know, the, the husband is fascinated with insects, who, by the way, is the landlord from Godfather Part Two. so that was kind of... Nice little touch. (laughs) Gave us something to focus on while we were trying to figure out what the hell was going on in the movie. But there's that. The completely insane out of nowhere ending with the little kids. It's like, Uh, I don't even know like what, you know, I'm not saying that it needs to have a meaning. Because, I mean, we've talked a lot too about you find your own meaning as a viewer. Was there anything that they're trying to convey? Or is it just life is unfair? (laughs) Because that's how it feels. It's like the movie starts out and you're like, oh, this is kind of like Clue. 
But then it's like, but it's also like Friday the 13th, but it's also like every movie where two neighbors hate each other. Right. But then it's also like this couple who like you don't even know why they got married in the first place but there's also another couple who's trying to solve the clue mystery and i literally couldn't keep track after a while of who was coupled with who and what guy was what there were also two or three guys in this that looked identical to me (laughs) and i couldn't figure out who was who and i feel bad about that but i i couldn't and uh the cranky fisherman who like lives in a shack and just fills boats with squid spoiler alert yeah, not a fan. I uh, can't imagine ever seeing that again. But I'm also glad I saw it. Yeah, for and sure. I, I think it's worth watching at least once if you haven't seen it, just to sort of understand its place in the history of right. both Giallo and also just horror in general. Right. And if you wind up enjoying it, that's uh, more power to you. I, I just uh, can't go along with that. And that wrapped up our night. For the birthday viewing. Mm -hmm. That's where my viewing ends. But I'd also found out, like I said, that on the actual night of my birthday, of all things, I was just curious of what I thought maybe, like, I'll find an episode of an old television show that aired that night. And I was surprised to find out that on my actual birth date, a horror TV movie actually aired in repeat. It was one that that was debuted in November 24th, 1970, but it was repeated on my birthday and i thought well that's kind of convenient that actually one of the horror tv movies and one i've never seen so i watched crowhaven farm i intend to drive up and take possession of crowhaven farm this weekend Produced by Aaron Spelling. And short version of the plot for this is that Hope Lang plays a woman whose husband can't give her a baby. That's where we join this married couple. And he's that a, jerk. He's a tortured artist. And they she's inherited a place in New England, an old New England farm. And then she starts having visions of another life where she may have been pressed to death as a witch. And everybody in town is very mysterious and weird, including Lloyd Bachner and John Carradine, who shows up for two seconds. And uh, As he does. A couple other people. This movie is filled, by the way, with actors from Twilight Zone, including a couple actors from the Masks episode that we both love a lot, the New Orleans one. Mm-hmm. And a uh, little old man who's in several episodes, including in the one with Dick York, where he wants to, he always fantasizes about stealing the bank's money and going on a trip. So there's a lot of Twilight Zone actors in this. So it gives it that vibe. And Lloyd Bachner also is to serve man. So it, I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. And also it brings us full circle because it brings us back to witchcraft and the occult and the idea of an endless curse that very much links us back to a touch of Satan at the beginning of this whole thing. And of course, the, the thing she eventually discovers is she's sort of kind of the reincarnation of a woman who was part of this coven and this coven is very much still operating she's doomed it's going to end badly for her and everybody and it was a torturous experience to actually sit through the whole thing (laughs) and finish watching it it was bad 
it was boring and at times where it felt like it might pick up it it didn't and it just basically was a ponderous series of cliches and very bad acting in places and also as opposed to some of the things a particularly obvious throwback to basic ideas about marriage and a woman's role in a marriage that felt so uncomfortable to even revisit that it was just painful and so much of this predicated on the idea that obviously the only thing she really wants in the world is to be pregnant and you know what's going to happen with this baby and there's elements of rosemary's baby and there's a also in keeping with the fact we mentioned dark knight of the scarecrow dealt with some touchy subject matter and i think a very uh solid way creating a truly uh good villain out of it this one has uh, a young girl in it who is evidently well she's part of the coven but she's also interested in the husband and shows very overt interest in him and it's just truly disturbing and this is from 1970 Gross. and it ends bad um it ends with a really dark ending with a with a policeman also basically being satan so that part scans but crowhaven farm awful <laughs> truly terrible a bad capper to the 50th birthday marathon but again something i was genuinely interested in seeing and happy to have seen once because i'm fascinated by all the things that i've never seen or that may have been a a part of the history of all this to some people that I skipped or missed. And it's nice to fill in these gaps. And in the case of one like this, I was also fascinated, by the way, right at the beginning, I could tell where this was going to go in terms of quality because the beginning of the movie actually starts with like a shot of them. Like I forget exactly where they're driving into where Crowhaven farm is. And there's actually a sign up that says Crowhaven farm in big letters on the sign there. And the, the movie zooms in on this image of the sign standing there saying Crowhaven Farm. And then suddenly the title of the movie is superimposed over that sign in a totally different font, Crowhaven Farm. And it's like, you had it already. It was there on the sign. But no, they had to put it on again. Like, by the way, that's the title of our I thought, okay, that's what this movie is going to be. Incompetent. So that, that wrapped up my birthday viewing. <laughs> the, the other thing, too, is we, we waited quite a while to record this. I know I probably had a couple other thoughts about Crowhaven Farm at the time, but I think the fact that I can't remember anything else about it tells you all you need to know. It's probably a coping mechanism for how it bad is. it was. It's tricky these days more than ever, I find. Maybe if you're a certain age, too, looking back at a particular era, it can be tricky to revisit childhood favorites and risk the possibility of learning just how much the things you grew up with are toxic or deeply problematic and you'll never be able to see them in the same way again and of course nor should you but it can be difficult to deal with that it's very difficult to come to terms with the idea of what's nostalgic because of a relationship to childhood you want to feel that warm nostalgia for it but it also can't change the way you view it with an adult lens right. and recognize things that you wouldn't necessarily have recognized as a child so it's complicated which is why in looking back at everything we watched that i already knew 
it was nice to see that for the most part, things like the Omega Man and Dracula AD 72 still hold up for me as the fun viewing experiences that I've always seen them as. And while there are certain aspects of them that I can see a little differently now, I don't see anything of those movies that doesn't enable me to be able to keep revisiting them. Mm -hmm. And that's nice. And on top of that, a movie that always stuck with me in sort of a vaguer way as a, a horror touchstone that maybe had more of an effect on me and my appreciation for certain things than I realized, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, is truly deserving of its reputation as a great memorable piece of horror from television and and easily, for 1981 especially, easily comparable to many of the theatrical releases of that time as a movie that deserves to be considered a horror classic. It's a great piece of work. And for the rest of it, it was fun to see the stuff that we saw. <laughs> but uh, I think we'll, we would leave them there, I guess. And that's that's about it. I'm never going back to Crowhaven Farm again. No one's going to make you. Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House, featuring Natalie B. Latofsky and Arnold T. Dumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at nblatofsky, that's nblitofsky, and Arnold at Doctor of the Dead. It's me. Our movies this episode were... All right, hold on. The Touch of Satan, 1971, Omega Man, 1971, Dracula AD 1972, 1972, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, 1981, A Bay of Blood, or Twitch of the Death Nerve, 1971, and Crowhaven Farm, 1970. Rules <sighs> in the House is an ATB Publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atbpublishing.com. You know what? Tomorrow, I think I'll teach you a new game. Did I ever show you how to play the chasing game? It's fun. You'll like it. It's sort of like playing cats.